All right, good morning, 945. <clears throat> good morning. My name is Michael Fueling. I'm the lead pastor here at the Village Church. I have the joy to open up God's Word with you. And uh, before we jump into uh, this message, um, I want to just ask a personal favor. So next week, we're going to take a one-week hiatus from our trap series, and uh, we're going to be doing kind of a one-off, and the world is crazy, and so much is changing everywhere, and stuff is changing at church, et cetera, and so we want to kind of take a week and cast some vision and talk about the future and share with you some immediate things that are, that are going on here and some shifts that we are looking to make, and so would you, if you're able to come next week, that would be awesome, but if you call Village Church your home and you're not able to be here, um, would you go online and would you listen to that message because I want to make sure that we're kind of all on the same page as we move into the future. Amen? Sounds good. All right. Um, Open your Bibles with me to the book of Ephesians. We're going to be in chapter two this morning. This is week four in our series on traps. And here's kind of the general goal of the series. Uh, The goal is to identify the ways in scripture that Satan sets traps for Christians. When Satan sets a trap, he wants you to fall into it. He wants you to fall into disobedience, sin, shame, and then be effectively useless for Jesus and his kingdom. What we want to do is we want to highlight these. We want to draw attention to them so that as we kind of walk into this world and live, um, we can kind of see them coming from a mile away. And so the goal in this series is to raise our discernment and really to help us avoid all of these traps. So the title of this message is the demonic trap you cannot see. All right, so let's jump in. Uh, All Christians, all true Christians, there are a few things that we agree on. And uh, here are a handful of statements that if if you have trusted in Christ, you're you're gonna read these and you're gonna go, yep, that's not offensive, that's actually true of me. I am a sinner. My sin is a big deal. My sin has affected every part of my life. And my sin has separated me from God. So if you're a Christian in this room, I just, we read that, and you go, not just about me, by the way, but you too, right? Right, you're like, yeah, Michael, that is you, I agree, right? No. If you read that, you, you should go, That's, that is the beginning, that, is, that, that was true of me. I am a sinner. My sin is a big deal. It has affected every part of my life. My sin has separated me from God. Now, even though we say these things, uh, that doesn't tell us probably on the ground what this looks like. So I want to go back in time to the 20th century. Can you raise your hand if you remember the 20th century? It was the 1990s, and uh, I was listening to a radio show called Loveline with Dr. Drew. Do not go back and listen to this, by the way. It was the 90s. All right. So it was a, it's a love uh, and uh, dating advice show, okay? So Dr. Drew um, gets this girl. And I, I, the girl's story is very typical. And you know, Dr. Drew, I, um, all these boys, they keep breaking my heart. They keep cheating on me. It's not working. You know, what's wrong with all of them? And, and I don't rem- really remember his answer, but I do remember four words that he said. They stuck with me. And he, he says to her, your picker is broken, And I was like, yes, yes, that is vocabulary I understand. Your picker is broken. So now fast forward, I become a youth pastor, and I really want to help students understand kind of the nature and the breadth of how sin actually impacts us. So we extrapolated this to to four different words. And so what we teach students is this. 
my wanter is broken, my feeler is broken, my thinker is broken, and my feeler are broken. And sin has a way of breaking every part of us, not just an aspect of us, but every part. So are my desires trustworthy? No, my wanter, it's broken, okay? Are, are my feelings trustworthy? No, my feeler, it's broken. I feel things that are off and wrong and inconsistent all the time. Are my thoughts trustworthy? Just because Michael Fueling or you have a thought, does that mean it's reliable? No, my thinker, it is, it is broken. Are my choices trustworthy? No, my, my picker is broken. Does this, by the way, describe like any of your past life? You, you look at the past, you're like, I've made a lot of really terrible decisions. I think I have a broken picker, wanter, thinker, and feeler. By the way, moms and dads, grandmas and grandpas, you're welcome for the vocabulary that you can now use with your children. I think your feeler right now, I think it's broken. Can we just like submit this to the word of God just for a moment? But, but, but we, we kind of pull back and we say, this is kind of what sin has done to us. It has broken every part of us and every part of us needs reformation by the word of God and the spirit of God. There is no part of us that is left untouched because of sin. Now we look at Ephesians 2, and Paul is going to describe kind of the same general concept, but he's going to do this to a different audience from a different millennium to a different part in, in a different part of the world. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. He says to the church in Ephesus, you, Christians, were, past tense, dead. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you, past tense, once walked. Okay, so first one is blunt. It describes the impact of sin on everyday life. Before Jesus, there is one word that describes your spiritual state. You were spiritually dead. You and I were a spiritual corpse, spiritually lifeless, which, by the way, it's insulting if you've never trusted in Christ. Like anybody in here who's trusted in Christ, you've already come to grips with before Jesus, I was a spiritual corpse, spiritually lifeless. Now, let me tell you who this is particularly insulting to. It would be anybody who lived in the city of Ephesus because they were a deeply spiritual people. If you zone out, go into ChatGPT and type in, uh, the goddess Artemis in Ephesus in the first century tell me about their religious worship, and you're going to learn a whole lot about how spiritual and perverse and disgusting the Ephesians were. But here, here's the deal. The spirit that they were following did not lead them to life, but led them to death. So let's just kind of pull back. There is only one spiritual realm. There's not two spiritual realms. There's not multiple. There is one. And in the spiritual realm, if you navigate or engage with anything spiritual, here are your options. You can navigate the spirit of Jesus Christ or the Holy Spirit, or you can navigate an angel. And in the category of angels, there are going to be two categories. You have demons who are fallen angels, and you have angels which are good angels. And so if you are navigating or engaging in the spiritual realm, this is the totality of your options. It doesn't matter what religion you call it. It doesn't matter if it's a spiritual practice, if you're a deeply spiritual person. You're either navigating the Holy Spirit, angelic spirit, or demonic spirit. There are no actual other options. And intentionally or unintentionally, 
If you have never trusted in Jesus and you are dabbling in the spiritual realm, it is a high probability that you are dabbling in the realm and the domain of demons. But if you are in Christ, you now actually have the ability to engage fully with the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus Christ, anytime you want. Wonderful perk. Now, when, when this book of Ephesians was read to the church in Ephesus 2,000 years ago, we aren't sure exactly at this moment who the pastor was, but I, there's a high probability, I want to tell you how the church did not respond when this verse was read. They probably didn't say, I mean, come on, Paul. It's a little bit harsh, don't you think? A spiritual corpse? I mean, maybe Jimmy, <laughs> But I wasn't that bad. I mean, I worshiped idols like all the rest and participated in crazy sexual things. And I was the most honest and I stole a bit, but like spiritually dead? Isn't that kind of like over the top? Nope, they were probably like, yep, that describes our life. Because when I trusted in Christ, I was given the Holy Spirit. I was given access into Holy Spirit things. And it showed me what is truly spiritual, what is life and what is death. And, and so this is normal for Christians. We speak regularly like I was spiritually dead. I met Christ and I was spiritually alive. Now, verse two is gonna identify something very peculiar about the specific ways that we sin. So verse two says, following, this is again before Christ, the course of this world. If you're just kind of reading this, you're going to be tempted to kind of breeze past this statement, and I want to pause, and I want to look at the word course. The word course is identifying that the kinds of trespasses and sins that, that we fall into aren't random, but we're, we're actually designed for us to walk in. What it's actually saying is that every generation and every culture has specific ways that they sin, and those ways that they're sinning are actually created just for that generation and just for that place. Let me, let me like give you a couple examples here, but big picture. Um, have, you ever, have you ever noticed that different cultures have different ways of sinning than your culture? Okay, so for example... Uh, I want to talk about actually racetrack. So a racetrack, it is a course. And the design, it is pre-chosen. You can do a lot on that track, but you have to follow the course or you get in trouble. People are incentivized to what? To stay on the course. You think about an obstacle course. You can move in one direction, but the, the goal is that all these hurdles are actually designed and you got to move in like a specific, specific direction. So vanity. Can we agree that no matter where you find it, what generation you're in, vanity is a sin? Sound good? Okay. If you lived in ancient Egypt, being, being overweight as a man or a woman was a symbol of beauty. Guys, wouldn't you just love to like look in the mirror and be like, I'm pretty much overweight. I look better than I ever have before. I'm going to put on another 10 pounds. Like, what a, what a delight. Uh, in Mauritania, it's in um, Western Africa, there's a controversial practice. It's called le bleu, which is L-E-B-L-O-U-H, where young girls are force-fed to make them gain weight so they can become more attractive. Um, or during the Renaissance period in Europe, right? O being overweight was beautiful. This is my dream, by the way. We live in the wrong place at the wrong time. All right. The course 
for some generations is obesity. The course for this place and this time is emaciation. It's the same sin, but there are different courses designed for different cultures and generations and times. And it's not an accident that people all start kind of sinning in the same ways. Or or here's another one, lust, it's always a sin. But the course that lust would take before the internet and after the internet, they look really different. Or hating who God made you to be, hating your body, feeling like you're stuck in the wrong body, it's not a good thing. But for some reason right now, in some places, it's acceptable to go through hormone therapy and cut off parts of your body. 20 years ago, that would have been insane. It's a different course. It's a different way of sinning for a particular generation. And when you start thinking about like our children and grandchildren, those even yet born, to think about the different courses that the evil one is curating for generations of children to fall into. And this is why people start kind of thinking the same lies and feeling the same feelings and choosing the same things. The course, it's so typical. If you take a culture, a group of people of the same kind of ideas and values, and you give them the same kinds of sins, they're just going to be prone to fall in, into them. And what's interesting is most of us don't think about that sin that I'm about to fall into was actually a course designed for me and my culture and people just like me to trip me up and trap me up. It's why, for most people, the same thing you struggle with, the same thing you struggle with, there are so many others who struggle with the exact same thing. It's a trap. It's a part of a course. It's pre-designed for this cultural moment to uniquely get us here and now. Verse 2 talks about the person designing the course. Verse 2 says, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. So here's what we see. The course, it's curated by a prince. And we saw last week that prince is Old Testament language that is often used to identify demons. This particular demon prince we're seeing here is very powerful. And verse 2 goes on to identify that this demon prince is not indeed a person, because that's a possibility, because prince can go both ways. But here we see it is a spirit, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And this prince is Satan himself. Now, I want you to notice a couple words here. First, I want you to look at the word air here in verse 2. So the Apostle Paul uses the imagery of the air to illustrate the extent of Satan's jurisdiction, where Satan is allowed to create courses. Everywhere you go, everywhere you can breathe, he has the power and the freedom to create courses, to create traps, unique to your generation, to people who have your temperament and your personality. And sometimes it feels like it's impossible to escape it. Second, look at the word spirit. This is the word pneuma in the Greek language, P-N-E-U-M-A. And what's interesting is that it can refer to, in the Greek New Testament, to any of the following ideas. Breath, 
wind, angel, a demon, the Holy Spirit, a human spirit. Verse two can actually also be translated this way. The demon who controls the air, who is the breath or the wind or the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And here what the Apostle Paul is picking up on a, a really important theme, and it's this. Human beings are pneumatic. You guys know what like a pneumatic tool is? It does not run on electricity. It actually runs and is animated on, on air. And what he's identifying is that our, our spirit operates based on the spiritual air that we breathe. That when we breathe spiritual air, it impacts our spirit and therefore the things that we do and who we become. So let's just summarize what happens in verses one and two. Satan is a powerful spirit. He is creating a spiritual atmosphere, spiritual air. It is breathed in by the sons of disobedience, those who have not trusted in Christ, and it makes us profoundly susceptible to the specific traps created, designed, and laid out for us in our moment in our culture. So what is this air that people are breathing in? Whatever it is, it is forming people's thoughts, feelings, desires, their choices. It's not an accident that when you go out into the world, people are thinking the same thoughts, they're having the same feelings and the same general impressions. And, and although you have a hard time kind of identifying this, like it's hard to measure it, you, you know it, you feel it, and you see it, right? Like there are thoughts and feelings that you have as a Christian that you know in some places, if you articulate those things, it's not gonna go well for you. You know that they're all agreeing, thinking, and feeling the same things. And if I kind of push against that, I'm gonna be in big, big trouble. Paul, Paul's a couple different phrases that he uses to describe this invisible thing. One, he calls it the air. He calls it the spirit of the age. He calls it the course of this world. And in English, we actually have a really specific word we use to describe this thing. It's the word culture. You can't see it. You can't touch it. You can't feel it. You can measure it maybe by behavior, you know when you step in it, it's like sort of like when you go to a different country and you're trying to speak their language, but you keep using curse words and you're not trying to. Anybody else ever done that? It's like the story of everybody, right? And they look at you like you're really funny. Like you can't, you don't know exactly what it is, but you know when you step in it and you know, you know when you're in a place and there are different, I'll say, thoughts, feelings, wants, and desires than what you have. And so Satan is this pneuma, this spirit who is powerfully and invisibly influencing the pneumas, the breath, the wood, by his breath and wind, the spirit through culture of those who have yet to trust in Christ. So 1 John 5, 19 summarizes it very interestingly. It says it like this. We know that we're from God. If you trusted in Christ, you know this. Like this is, you, you were reborn. You were born again. You were born spiritually. We know that we're from God, but the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, meaning he is the prince of the power of the air, controlling the culture. It is the air that, that the sons of disobedience are breathing in, and, and we're watching this. They are becoming more and more what they breathe. Now, the book of Ephesians, Paul talks about the spiritual world, I think in a pretty unique way. And so this phrase, it's only found in the book of Ephesians, but it comes up multiple times. It's called the heavenly places. And what happens in the heavenly places is that there's a lower part and there is an upper part. The lower part, it's called the air. 
And this is the place where the atmosphere is controlled by Satan himself. He is the prince of the power of the air. This is, this is the region that controls the culture, the atmospheres that people in the world are breathing on a daily basis. But there's an upper region to the heavenly places. And this is very simply what we call heaven. And this is the place that Jesus lives. And the spirit of God is here. And the oxygen, the atmosphere, the air of heaven is not one of death and trespass and sin. The atmosphere here in the heavenly places is one of life and truth and reformation and reality and joy. It is all the things our soul wants. This is the air God's people breathe. And it's different. It's from a different culture. It does different things. It has a different power. It does not create death, but it creates life. Verse four describes what happens when we breathe in this spiritual air. Verse four says, but God, being rich in mercy, meaning that whatever you're about to read, we didn't deserve. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he had, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. The moment you trusted in Christ and you said, I am a sinner. My sin has separated me from God. God gave you his oxygen mass directly into heaven and you began to breathe the resuscitating, resurrecting air of heaven. And what I, what I love about this moment is that the moment somebody trusts in Christ, the moment you acknowledge you're a sinner and you believe in the life, death, and resurrection, you now have forever access into the heavenly places. You have access to God. You are able to now breathe the air that gives you life. Now let's be straight. All of you who've trusted in Christ, are you also able right now to breathe the air of the prince of the power of this world, the spirit of the age? For sure. And when you do, does the Holy Spirit kind of remind you, be like, don't be dumb, it's not good for you. And you're like, I know, but I like it, but I want it, my, my picker is broken, I know it. And then you go back to the resurrection, resuscitating, life-giving, cultural air that comes from heaven. And you know this, you know this. And what I love about the moment you trust in Christ is that for the rest of your life, you now have tasted the heavenly air. And every time we act out of our broken wanter, thinker, picker, chooser, and we go back to these things, we know it is not life because we've tasted life. We know it is death. It might feel good for the moment, but we know the end of it. And so we, we kind of step back and we just say, you know what? This air, it's a trap, it's death. It's disgusting. It kills. It breaks my thinker, my wanter, my feeler, my picker. It just disintegrates them. And somehow when I breathe the air of heaven, my thinker gets more clear-headed. My feeler gets more grounded. My picker, I'm actually a bit more proud of it. And everything kind of changes because the very nature of it is that it is a resurrecting, transformative air. Verse six goes on and says, after we breathe in this air, raised us up with him and seated us with him where? In the heavenly places 
in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show forth the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. We're going to talk about specific traps of the prince of the power of the air. But here's what you know. If you have trusted in Christ, you know when you take one oxygen mask off and when you put on the other. And if you don't know it right away, you're probably going to be able to figure it out sooner than later because it has the smell of death, of corruption, and of brokenness. And as we start to like look at our lives and we see this kind of death culture, this disobedience culture begin to birth in us, it might be because we have set aside the oxygen mass that comes directly from heaven and we are getting toxic, polluted air. Now, every, every week in the series, here's what we do. Um, we identify, uh, we go through a text of scripture and then we identify some really specific ways that uh, we can apply this into our own lives. Now, in the past couple weeks, we've been looking at a lot of really enormous, big subjects, culturally, et cetera. This week is gonna be a bit more personal and a bit more invasive. Um, I do not have time to unpack every nuance of what I would like to unpack in this next section. But here, here's what I do know. Uh, you do have the Holy Spirit if you trust it in Christ. And so my ask of you is that you would just ask him, Lord, if there is something here that I need to kind of dig deeper on because this actually is an issue, um, Lord, would you just, would you provoke my spirit and give me a restlessness until I kind of figure this thing out? So I'm gonna give you some categories, uh, but I can't do all the work for you. And so you might need to go deeper into some of these categories on your own. Most have two primary sources of spiritual air. Your phone and your people. Now, if this was 10 years ago, I would have said your computer and your people. But actually, it's very interesting. We're finding with the majority of, of people is that no longer is your phone an accessory to your computer, but your computer is an accessory to your primary device, which is your phone. So you might be like, well, I, I don't get toxic air from my phone. I get it from my computer, so this doesn't apply to me. Whatever, fine. <laughs> I don't care where you get it from, but for most people, this is it. Let's talk about phone traps. There are two primary phone traps I want to discuss. Phone trap number one, the news trap. I plead with you to understand. 99% of the news you will consume from anywhere, it is not for you or for the kingdom of God. It is for profit and for power. And when you get that, I'm not picking on liberal, I'm not picking on conservative, I'm not picking on independent or mainstream, I'm picking on all of them. When you understand that we actually have high standards as believers in Jesus for truth and reality, we don't just buy hook, line, and sinker into everything we hear. I am in awe of how people extract information out of context for a financial or political agenda on the conservative and liberal side. And I have strong opinions. And I am struck that there are sources I have repeated to other people, did you hear? And then they say, look deeper into that. I am struck at what people will lie and do to sell clicks. And what's happening is we are being formed and reformed, for better or for worse, by the news we take in. 
And so as Christians, what, what I challenge you to do is to demand credible sources, double check and hold things loosely and watch what forms your fears and watch because we are now entering a new world and I've already entered, but it's gonna accelerate where the goal is transformation of the masses and not truth. Use your discernment and beg the Holy Spirit to help you see what is true. I will stop there because I have a lot more to say. Phone trap number two, the social media trap. I don't have an issue with social media. I don't, I'm not gonna pick on a specific one. You can figure out the one that might cause you to be the, the least human. Social media that does not propel you to human connection might just not be for you. I think there are two big values for social media. One is to learn and get information so that I can live wisely in this world, and the other is to propel me to better relationships and human connection. And I can pretty much guarantee the vast majority of empty, mindless scrolling is not good for anyone guilty as charged. And there is this trap that disconnects us from real humans and that connects us so that we are now no longer living our own lives, but we're living vicariously through other people. Your life and stories are great. I don't want to cease living my life so I can watch you live your life. I want to engage in social media that helps me learn and grow and enhances human connection and relationships. So in summary, I, I choose as a follower of Christ to use my phone to propel human connections, to consume heavenly air, and to help me live wisely in the world. Now, some of you, you, you zoned out because you're like, no, I'm not listening to that. That's fine. But I challenge you to not fall into the trap that is your phone or your computer or your Blackberry. <laughs> what? Let's talk people traps. There are two primary people traps I want to discuss. People trap number one. Old friends from old places. I could literally stop right there and there's nothing more that needs to be said. Every friend group has an air. It has a culture. And when we are with them, it is easy to breathe in that old air. Now, I am not a fan of get rid of everybody out of your life. and I'm not saying that. But I am saying that we need to recognize that that is a trap we go back with our old friends and our old ways, and we have, ne- we have yet to grow maybe the courage to say, that's the old me. And so somehow to live in this tension where I, I'm not a judgmental jerk who abandons everybody in my life, that's, that's, that's an extreme we don't need to take. But I, I have to figure out how do I not go back and consume the old air? Now, Uh, There's advice that we give to high school students all the time, junior high students. And so um, I think we all need basically the same advice when it comes to friends. And and here's kind of the the framework that we give to students. Uh, We say, choose your your one to three. I don't care if it's four or five or one or two. The number is irrelevant. The majority of people are going to have one to three people who have the most amount of influence and power over their life, who influence their mind, their thoughts, their feelings, their sin, their nonsense, their righteousness, et cetera, Right? And the challenge is, choose your one to three, and here are four basic questions 
to help you figure out who your one to three are. Number one, do they love Jesus? Number two, are they growing spiritually? Number three, will they tell me hard truth? And this is the clincher. Number four, can I tell them hard truth? There's a lot of people who can dish it but can't take it, you know what I'm saying? But we step back, we look at our one to three or four or five, whatever, and we say, these are the most powerfully formative voices in our life. It doesn't mean we get rid of everybody else. It just means that we are very clear on who the one to three who are in my life that are helping me become more like Jesus. People trap number two, my blood family. Family's amazing. Family's wonderful. Every family has a culture, don't they? They have an air they breathe. And you go back with your family and you're like, why do I, I keep falling into that old me. I got saved from this. I'm not saying abandon your family. What I'm saying though is that there are many things that are justified because, well, it's my family. And my first loyalty is not to my blood family. It is to Jesus Christ. And, and this is actually one of the hardest things for many people to become a Christian is to say, no longer is my husband or my wife or my children or my mom or my dad or my brother or my sister the most important person in my life. It is now Jesus Christ. And so we are cautious and we're aware that that is a trap for many, for many of us. And we say, That's, I'm not gonna abandon them, but I'm going to walk in with my eyes wide open knowing there are old traps that are really easy for me to, to fall into and I'm just not, I'm not gonna do that. So as a Christian, I choose to bless my people by staying connected to Jesus, pointing them to him, and inviting them to freely and boldly speak into my life without consequence. I have two so what's on this, and, and the first, you become what you breathe. If I were to give you practical examples of every single app, we'd be here for days. Again, I'm just gonna trust that the Holy Spirit is going to um, show your heart exactly what it needs to see as you take your next steps with this. Here's a question. So if, if the air of culture is invisible, then how can I know what air I'm breathing in? Because again, sometimes you realize it after maybe a week or two or a month, but like, I want to know quicker. Anybody else want to know quicker if you're breathing toxic air that is designed for your death and destruction? I would like to know. And so here's what we do. We use the right tools to identify symptoms. And there are four tools. You have the scriptures. You have the Holy Spirit. You have your conscience. And you have your people. Um, I just want to show you how to use the scriptures as a tool. So uh, I put Galatians chapter 5, verse 19 to 21 uh, on here. And, and so very simply, this is a great way to maybe help you figure out if you are breathing the wrong air. Here, here's what it says. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and catch all, things like these. It's interesting, if you, if you stop for a moment, there's three categories of sins that are happening here. And, and this is a great diagnostic. Am I falling into one of these three categories? Here's number one, false religion. And here are the words that, that he uses, idolatry, sorcery. Drunkenness and orgies are a huge part of, of their false religion. Maybe you're dabbling in spiritual things that are not from the Holy Spirit or from the Word of God, and, and this is a level of idolatry. Here's the second category, 
Sexual perversion, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, drunkenness, orgies. Again, some of them apply to different categories. And the, and the moment you're here in this world, you're like, and you know when it starts. And that one, you're like pretty quick, right? And you're like, this is, I am literally breathing toxic air designed for my destruction in this moment. This is not from the Holy Spirit. Here's the third one. Relational strife. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, fits of anger, fits of anger, and, and I know that when these things are happening, somewhere, someone in the orbit of this is breathing in toxic air. And I want to make sure it's not me. It's a simple, simple diagnostic. We try to teach you how to listen to the Holy Spirit in, the conscience, in your conscience, but there's, there's a second way to maybe help you identify quicker um, when you are breathing toxic air, and that is to intentionally create feedback loops. Feedback loops are intentional systems where you get information real time that you don't have access to unless someone gives it to you. Feedback loops are wonderful. And so we go to people and we invite them to speak into our life without consequence. And we do this preemptively while we're breathing in the air of heaven. Like right now I'm good, but I trust that one day I won't be. And it might even be tomorrow. And so I'm inviting you to speak candidly and say, what's coming out of you is toxic. It's not heavenly. And so... We look at scripture to help us diagnose. We listen to other people. Uh, I think we have this profound way to hear the Holy Spirit, quench him. <laughs> um, and then our conscience is like, are you sure you want to do that? Like, quench that. And so sometimes your friends, your people, your one to three, it's the last line of defense before you start doing something really dumb. And so we go out of our way to create intentional feedback loops with our one to three who can speak back into my life without consequence. And so at number two, you can't control the air you're born into. We were all born into toxic air, and it has corrupted every single one of us. Our thinker wants or feeler picker. But you can trust in Christ and breathe the air of life. And I, you might be here and you're like, you basically described my entire life. I hope not. But if you look at this dead in sin and trespasses and you're like... I get that. And if you feel powerless to be transformed, if you feel like you're a slave to sin, if you feel like you're just becoming like everybody else, a part of the masses, a part of the air, and you want freedom from that, here's the first thing we do. We tell God, I am sorry. Forgive me, save me. I believe in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And if you have never done that today, is the absolute greatest day to do that. I wanna invite you anytime, anywhere. You might leave here and be like, ah, that guy's ridiculous. And then tomorrow you'd be like, oh no, I need to trust in Christ. You can do it tomorrow. You can do it when you're, when you're laying in your bed. You can do it in the shower. You can do it when you're in a walk. You can do it in your car. You can trust in Christ anywhere, anytime. And I wanna just plead with you the moment you realize that you are a sinner and you believe in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Ask him to save you. His promise is that not only are you forgiven, but you are given the air, oxygen, the culture of heaven, and you will have access to that forever. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word, for exposing the subtle, ridiculous ways the evil one lays out courses, for giving us the discernment to see the different ways that applies here and now, and I just pray you would help us Help us see spot. Show us, God, by your Holy Spirit, the different traps laid in front of us, the ways that we fall into this toxic air. And Lord, for the times we quench your spirit or ignore your word, would you raise up people to speak to us truth so that we can avoid breathing in this toxic air. And thank you for the blood of Christ 
that every single sin we commit has been forgiven the moment we trusted in you. And so, Lord, we have that freedom to run back to you anytime we mess up. We love you and are so grateful for that. We thank you and we remember through communion what you've done for us and we do it in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Amen.